HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Support comes from the Pennsylvania Hemp Summit, November 14th and 15th, convening hemp industry stakeholders to learn, connect, and grow. Details at pahempsummit.com. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And today, we're going to be talking about cookies. Cookies and a whole lot more. Cookies, in some form or another, have been around for at least 2,500 years. And I say one form or another because you can imagine it's not exactly how we know them. Especially with sugar. Sugar, we had to wait for sugar to arrive in many places. According to culinary historians, the first historic record of cookies was their use as test cakes. A small amount of cake batter was baked and, and put inside the oven when they thought it was ready, and it tested the oven temperature. Obviously, if it burned up, it was too hot, and so forth. The English, Scottish, and Dutch brought the first cookies to America in the form of tea cakes, shortbread, and Kukia, the Dutch word for which became cookie. By the early 1700s, it was anglicized into the word cookie in America. But in early American cookbooks, cookies were not really given a space of their own. They were listed at the end of a, of a cookie, of a cake chapter. But legendary baker and cookbook author Rose Levy Berenbaum has put them up front and center with her newest book, the Cookie Bible. Rose made history when she pioneered the reverse creaming technique of cake making, and she wrote about it in her book, The Cake Bible. That was over 30 years ago. From there, she was off and running, and this is her 13th book, The Cookie Bible. Awards have rained down on all of her books, and she's appeared on television in her own series and a variety of other programs, and she is an inductee in the IACP Culinary Classics Hall of Fame and the Heritage Radio Network's Hall of Fame. Welcome, Rose. Thank you so much, Linda. Well, this this whole uh, cookie Bible and cake Bible, obviously, are not your only Bible books. You have several others. Uh, but it's curious. I, I could say that you are an iconic cookbook author because this this title of you know the the cake bible the cookie bible 
How did you come up with it, the Bible? It's actually a wonderful story because I'm sure a lot of people think that it would be a good title, their name and Bible, but don't do it. And that's how I felt too, because I thought, well, you know, it's not a word that usually is associated with cookbooks. And one day, Bert Green, I don't know if you remember him, but he Mm -hmm, was one of the first food people, yeah, marvelous cookbook writer and performer. And he called me and he said, I have a great idea for you, Rose. Baronbaum's Baking Bible. And my immediate response was, well, Bert, if you think that's so great, why don't you call your book Bert's Bible? And he said, (laughs) he said, I've been wanting to, but I've been living with a minister's son for 18 years who won't let me. (laughs) So he planted that idea in my head. He said, you know that you're my muse and it will be a Bible. So, you know, I have ancestors who were very famous rabbis, actually, and that was another thing that deterred me. But when I told my editor at the time, Maria Guarnaschelli, she said, you know, that might be a really good idea. Uh, after all, people have so much respect for it. So I Googled and I did not see anything except gun Bible. And I thought, if you can call something violent a Bible, then cookie, or no, cookie cake is certainly a lot gentler. And so why not call it that? And she had a mock-up made of the cover and was standing in the elevator at William Morrow with four other editors of people. And they stood up straighter when they saw that, when they saw that <laughs> mock-up. And it was kind of like, okay, this is it. Well, I mean, we were trying it on for size and we went for it. And since then I've seen bagel Bibles and all sorts of ridiculous titles. But right. I always thought I'll never do a cookie Bible. That just sounds silly. You know, cookies are not that grandiose. But then one day somebody on my blog wrote, you should really do a cookie Bible and and put all your new things in since you wrote Rose's (laughs) Christmas Cookies. And one day I woke up and I thought, she's right. I mean, I don't know how many months passed, but it just gave me the thought that, yes, I have a cookie Bible in me and it will complete the quartet of Bibles, pastry Bible, (laughs) bread Bible, cake Bible, and now cookie Bible. Well, and if anyone has not seen the original cover, of the cake Bible, it was a very serious looking cover. You know, it was just no photographs. It was just, you know, the the print. Yeah, people often think that I'm pretty serious and grim (laughs) until they meet me. But the thing is that even Maria, when I told her I wanted a four color book and she said, but it's so text heavy, it would be a waste of paper, you know, waste of print. So Mm -hmm. um, that's, of course, for production. And It was not a criticism because the reason Maria was willing to take the leap and put weight in a book, charts that had never been done before, and to give such information, that was something that wasn't usually done. So it was really something that she was proud of because she was kind of an intellectual snob. She'd gotten her master's, I think, at Yale where she met her husband. So it was certainly not criticism saying it's text heavy. In fact, at one point she said she was throwing out all of her other baking books because this is the one that the only one she was planning to use ever again. Was amazed. <laughs> I mean, and she was as she was known, Maria Guarnaschelli was known for being a tough editor. I mean, she was great, and her books were all are all have all been terrific. And she was she was um, tough. Well, I know, think that they invented the phrase "she did not suffer fools gladly." There you for go. Her. <laughs> right. For her. I mean, we hardly ever had an argument until the, until way several books later. Um, and because we were so much on the same page, it was like teamwork. We were the ones who made that book succeed because at hmm. that time, PR was not doing anything for cookbooks and there were not that many cookbooks out. Yeah, so, they got short shrift early on. That's for sure. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. now it's quite the difference. I mean, not the right. well, the publicity is great. It's uh, since COVID, there's less of going on tour and going out there, other than virtually. But now there are so many books, and everybody who ever did a show or did anything wants to do a book and does a book, even if they have to self-publish. Right, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I I fell in love with your Christmas cookie book, and that came out oh. how many years? That was a while back. That came out, I think, two years after the Cake Bible. Was mm. it 1991, maybe? Because Cake Bible was 88. Okay. So I couldn't imagine. I said, well, now, how in the world could she write another cookie book and call it the Bible? I thought this one was pretty much, you know, mm. complete. But it was very interesting because there are very – there's a lot of different recipes, a lot of different cookies in it. And – but – so now you answered my question ahead of time. Why did you write another cookie book? I mean, that was because somebody that, wrote you an, a, an email and told you to, right? <laughs> it's not the only reason. Well, that's the reason that I called it a Bible. But And, yeah, I guess the two things go together. But one of the major reasons is that things have changed so much. That's why I'm doing a revision of the Cake Bible after 34 years, mm-hmm. because ingredients have changed, writing style, less complex things. Like I did Notre Dame Cathedral and Gingerbread and the cookie book, uh, and the Emily and Rose's Christmas Cookies, and there's no house at all in this new book. But I also have revisited the recipes. People often say, well, I don't want to have a huge recipe and have to divide it in half. I think they would rather, more people would rather have a smaller recipe and then multiply it somehow. Mentally, it just seems less, if they want to do it, less of a stress to do. So instead of having four dozen, it's more like two dozen. And that's, I mean, cookies do keep better than most anything else. Oh, and by the way, what you mentioned about the test cookie from history, I use test dough to make a test cookie to see how the rest of the dough is. You cannot sure. do that with a cake or a pie. That's right. That's yeah. right. You waste mm. a lot of ingredients if you did that, for sure. Uh-huh. Yeah. It just wouldn't work. But, you know, with, with not all cookie dough. I mean, for example, a macaron as meringue, you can't do it. Well, I guess you could do a test one, but it would be kind of too late. But with the basic cookie dough, when it's too sticky, you can bake one cookie, is it going to spread too much? Do I want to add a little more flour? Does it need a little more sugar? You know, that kind of thing. You can adjust right. and it doesn't hurt the rest of the dough because you can, I mean, it's so much different from other doughs because it has more sugar. It has more fat usually. So that gives it a lot more forgiveness or it's much more forgivable when you re-knead it or when you just pinch off a little bit and refrigerate the rest until you're ready. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you... Yeah, um, I what I like about your recipes, you just already mentioned that this book, some of the most of the recipes are smaller in scale uh, than some of your past uh, cookie recipes from the other book. But also the layout. I like the layout um, a lot. Thank I like the, the way the ingredients are listed. Um, it's, you know, simpler, you know, very easy at a glance. And it's just just a a dream to use. It's an easy oh, book to thank use. Thank you. But. That is music to my ears because we one of the first people who put mise in mise en place or mise, which is the advanced prep, it's become mm-hmm. such a com- commonplace term that people don't even need to say en place or advanced prep. When they see mise and they see the things that you have to make ahead right up front, they right away get it. And if they don't know the word mise before, they know it now. Because, you know, you don't want to find out when you're halfway through the recipe, oh, I should have softened the butter. Right. right. (laughs) The things I should have known. Um, But, you know, we were, I was um, talking early on about how, how long cookies have been around. And of course, 
some of the first recipes um, written down, it really the common ones that we know today, didn't come about until you know, the 16th century and certainly 17th century. And yet even those, they're just hints, as anyone who, who reads historic recipes um, knows, they're just hints of amounts. They don't tell you precise amounts and, you know, and precise baking times and temperatures, you know, a soft oven, you know, a hot oh. oven. And, it, you know, you, you have to sort of intuit the rest of it. Well, people um, were using wood-burning ovens and they would put a piece of paper in to see how quickly it browned. That was, mm-hmm. and also people baked, so they could do it by feel. They could even do pie dough by feel. And now it's gone the other extreme where, I mean, I, the thing I'm proudest of of everything I've done is to get, especially baking books, everybody to use weight. And more recently, Graham's. And each book progressed of mine progressed further in that department because Maria said, yes, you can put ounces and grams, but you have to put the volume first because it's more user-friendly. A few books mm-hmm. later, the volume came after the ounces. And now I don't have ounces at all, which is really important because there are two types of ounces. There's liquid fluid ounces and there's weight ounces, and they're mm-hmm. not the same. So people right. are confused by that. So we got rid of that, and we just have first the grams, then the volume. and streamlines it much better plus the grams are, are accurate yeah you know, i mean they're accurate yeah. to one gram whereas the ounces are tw- they're 28 grams to an ounce so if it's a quarter of a, if scales do accurate to a quarter of an ounce that 20 uh, 24 to 28 divided by four is six so that's six times the amount that a gram would be wow <laughs> Quick math there. I like that. I'm not good at that either, but I was <laughs> thinking hard. <laughs> you were you were one of the first um, cookbook authors, well, definitely bake cookbook uh, baking authors, to insist on using the metric system. Yes. So I thought that was that's that's impressive because now you know, look that's where we are. And that's <gasps> that's what it is. Um, when you decided to put together this book. Um, aside from how much things have changed, maybe there's some techniques that have changed, and we'll talk about that. But what, are there cookies that you included or that stuck in your mind that were, you know, inspirational to you or that that, that had some special meaning, meaning and memories? Yeah, be- I'm glad you asked that, Linda, because I've also included recipes from friends and colleagues that I've loved, and I think my favorite recipe in the book comes from somebody named Zach Townsend, who's a chocolatier. And we met because he had a question about gelatin. And what happened was that I guessed that he was working with chocolate because chocolate and gelatin makes the most amazing glaze. I call the uh, lacquer glaze. And I, I learned it in Japan. Somebody gave me, his, a chef gave me his book in Japanese, but a friend translated it for me. Hmm. But I never had the courage to actually try it because I, you know, often chef's books don't work. And this one apparently said that it only uses ingredients that can be bought in a supermarket. And I had had this lacquer glaze at his store, at his boutique, and it was so shiny. That's why I called it lacquer glaze. That was my name for it. So I asked Zach if he was, that's what he was working on. And he said, how did you know? And he, I said, well, because of the chef. And where did you get the 
recipe. And he said, I worked at a place in Paris called La Petite Rose, and she would never give me the recipe, only the technique. And I said, well, I have the recipe, and you have the technique. Test it for me, and I'll put it in the book. And, and I said, someday we'll go to Paris together and show it to La Petite Rose. I don't remember her name, but it was a wonderful coincidence that, that yeah. name, her place was my name. And so we did. And we brought her the picture of the book, the because the book hasn't hadn't been out yet, where we put it, in, I think it was Rose's Heavenly Cakes, yeah, and we tasted the cake, the little cake there, and we were so proud that we liked ours better, you know. So we'd really pulled it off. But I knew that it was related to this chef because she was Japanese and she learned it from him in Japan before moving to Tokyo or from before moving from Tokyo to Paris. So Zach is, has become the number one translator of French cookbooks in this country. It started off where I recommended him to my publisher, and now he's our proofreader as well. And it's so wonderful to have a proofreader who knows and understands baking 100%. Oh, so I think a, that should gift. be paramount, right? This yeah. is the gift that keeps on giving. Wow, yeah. You know, um, cookies came about, I guess we can say pretty generally that um, aside from biscuits, you know, being like the hardtack and and things mm. like that, but they came about as little cakes, you know, little which makes a lot of sense. And you have some wonderful recipes for little cakes, you know, very special little cakes. Thank you. I love all these categories, but I never did actually tell you which the recipe is in the book that I love so much that yeah. Zach created. He put a truffle inside the cookie dough, a chocolate cookie dough, so that when it bakes, you have the outside of the cookie being crunchy and chocolatey, and the inside is melty because it's ganache. Ooh, I, 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 oh, I know that. I, I read that one. Yes, oh, definitely. Yeah. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, yeah that's great. Oh. Yeah, I don't think cookies are just little cakes. I mean, I think they can take different forms, so that's where I've taken it, and I think other people have too, like bar cookies and meringue cookies. And, oh, yeah. You know, what it, as long as it's small... That's the idea. And I think that's a good part of the appeal of a cookie because a lot of times people will say, oh, I don't want a piece of cake or a piece of pie. I'm on a diet. But one cookie, just one cookie. But of course, often they get tempted for the second cookie and the third. Somehow people don't worry about it as much. Hmm, yeah. Well, mm. um, let's let's back up a little bit here and and talk about your background, because you didn't you didn't start out as a baker and a pastry chef. Far from Which it. one would imagine? I never had a homemade cookie until I was 19, I think. My mother was a dentist, and her mother lived with us, and she would sometimes bring home like those marshmallow cookies with cookie outside and the marshmallow inside. If it was one day old, I wouldn't eat it. It just <laughs> didn't have the right texture. So I was kind of a cookie snob from, <laughs> from where the first <laughs> word go because I love taste and I love texture, but I'd had no tradition in my home of anybody making it. So when I tasted my first homemade cookie, it was when I was working at Educational Testing Service in Princeton, New Jersey, and somebody brought in the roses, well, what I now call the roses crescents. It was an almond crescent, very fragile and tender and buttery. And I took the recipe and I made it and I was able to make it myself. Of course, by now I've changed it and I don't know how I've adapted it because it's been so many years, but it's still my signature cookie. So that was huh. my beginning. But actually, I, I forgot about the most important part is that before I tasted the homemade cookie, I decided when I came home from college one year that I was going to make oatmeal cookies. I don't know why, <laughs> but I used the Quaker oat box and I used the recipe on the back of it. 
And yes, it made a cookie, one cookie, because it spread out for the entire <laughs> cookie sheet. <laughs> but that's when I realized the importance of writing accurate recipes. So, mm-hmm. I mean, of course, it didn't have weights, but the volume wasn't accurate either. I'm not against volume. If people insist on it, I think they'd be so much happier weighing. But if you use volume, it's so important to at least do it correctly. And that's why in this book and all my books, I say how to measure the flour if you're using volume. In this case, lightly spooned into the cup and leveled off. Because if you'd use what's called the dip and sweep, where you dip in the scoop of the measuring cup and you sweep it off, you might get as much as one and three quarter cups of one when you want one cup. Because wow. it it cut the flour is it's this powder and it, it it settles on sitting. I mean, when I lived in New York City, there were trucks going by that would have settled even more, you know. That's probably <laughs> when I got the one and three quarter cups. Well, so you just so you scoop it and you you spoon it in, spoon it into the measuring cup. Yeah, you spoon it lightly into it. the cup and then level it off, and then you'll come very close to when you weigh. Hmm. It's never the same. It's just like people saying, "Can I substitute such and such for this ingredient?" You can, but it won't be the same as the original. And don't substitute two things at a time. Oh, and that's why, Linda. By the way, I'm so proud of the freedom cookies because one day it occurs yes. to me. I mean, people think. It's so uptight having to weigh or measure and baking is so precise. But isn't it great that when you, all these little things that you have from making cookies that are still good, like classic fruit, nuts, that you can add the, to a cookie dough and feel free to do it. And you don't have to weigh and measure every single thing. You couldn't, I couldn't give weights for that because everything, all the ingredients weigh different things. So I just That's gave right. the amount, the approximate amount. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm a freedom baker, and so oh, yeah? sometimes they t- at bed, but I I think I'm pretty good. But sometimes mm-hmm. they turn out great, and other times, you know, it depends if I'm in a hurry or I'm thinking about something else, and I just you know I I maybe improvise or don't measure quite as carefully. But you're talking book, about cookies, right? Yes, yeah, cookies. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you have to you know that's a, a lot of people shy away from baking because. It has to be a little more precise, definitely more precise mm-hmm. than you know just general ba- um, cooking. So I mean, True. it's some people say it's more chemistry than than. Well, if you else. understand the chemistry, then you have, and this is why I always give understanding so that people can understand why certain things are done in case they prefer a different way. And I have to say that. I am basically a person who very much believes in freedom in all sorts of different ways. And it was the silver lining of COVID having to stay for two years without going to restaurants and cook every single meal. My husband also cooks, but I did most of the cooking and he, he certainly sped things up by helping. But I discovered that I didn't have to stick to the recipes, you know, and they're my own recipes. I used to look at one of my recipes and say to somebody, well, it says such and such, forgetting I'm the it. You know, you can change things by instinct when you've cooked a lot, especially when you cook the same thing. You you develop a feel. Like when I make pizza dough, I give the exact amounts, but sometimes I see this little flour left when I'm mixing, and so I add a few drops more of water. Or making a pie crust, sometimes I need a little bit more of the heavy cream. Mm -hmm. But I understand that. But with cooking now, I'm really so much more free than I ever was before. And as a consequence, I think a much better cook. People think okay. that bake, that bakers can't cook. You know, I think cooks can't bake because <laughs> it's the reverse. Because they're they're transferring, they're pivoting their ability to cook into make into baking. Thinking, oh, I can get away with this or that, and do it by feel or a pinch of this. No, you know, it's not quite the same at all. <laughs> right, two right. different mindsets. Well, what in your book? Um, I I know I can pick out 
several different things that have a lot of history, but does anything like come to mind quickly? Like what are some of the oldest or or let's say the classic best known cookies that you have included in the book that sort of are our usual standbys? Hmm. Well, first of all, the Pfeffernus is an yes. ancient cookie from Switzerland. I happen not to like. That's the only cookie I don't like, but I made it so for other people who love it as as good as I could, you know, that to my taste, because I think it comes from the fact that my mother was a dentist and in those days they used oil of clove as an anesthetic. Mm-hmm. And I don't I don't want to taste too much clove. I want just a hint of it there. I use it in many things, but not the way most people would use probably in a Pfeffernus. Also, there are, I think there are four recipes. When I translated La Passion de Chocolat, the Passion for Chocolate from Bernachon, right. France, there were four recipes that I thought needed a lot of work, but this is supposed to be a translation, not a revision. And so I've included them in the book, and those are as pretty old because they come from France several generations back. And then what else would there be? I mean, there's so many classic cookies I don't even realize are classic. Certainly, the chocolate chip cookie is an American classic that, you know, came, what was it invented in 18-something? When I went no, to it was actually not not until, let me see, I think it was later than that, actually, um, huh. uh, the 1937 by well, uh, well, Ruth Wakefield of, yes. in Massachusetts right at the Toll House restaurant. I thought it was Vermont because when I went to University of Vermont and everybody was always talking about that, but well, I could of be course wrong. you thought it was Vermont because you went to <laughs> University of Vermont. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, no, the actual toll. I mean, in fact, she. I mean, she even sold um, the rights to it and the name mm. to uh, to Nestle at some point. You know, I don't think there's yeah. any cookie better known than that in this country. No, absolutely. I wonder how it goes over in France. They often turn their nose up at American bakers. Mm-hmm. They go to Japan. They send their bakers to Japan to learn. Huh. Or they did anyway. I don't know if it's still the case, but yeah. I had a friend who sadly died recently. He was the one who had the French version of a, the sci- of for, for the Scientific American. He called it pour la science, pour science. <laughs> <laughs> no, for science. And he wanted to publish my book, one of my books. I guess it was the cake Bible. No, it was the pastry Bible because that was something that would work in France because the flour is different, but for pastry, you can adjust. And he showed me the letter from his sister saying that the French would laugh at an American's take on pastry. And I said, you know, the French are better at everything except humility. <laughs> That's how you learn from other people. You know? And he agreed. He said, he said, tu as raison, Rose. <laughs> that was so you sweet. hear that? All my, to all my French listeners, you see, you hear that. <laughs> uh, things have changed. This is a while back yeah, now. Definitely. Right? <laughs> the world has but, gotten smaller and we appreciate each other's abilities. Well, and, one that, that I noticed, um, you had, uh, a fr- I think, a friend or someone uh, come up with a, a recipe for jumbles. Now, jumbles are probably the oldest cookie that we know, but really? nothing, I didn't even know that. nothing as to what, you know, you have now, uh, so many of them include nuts and dried fruit mm. and, but jumbles have been around since the early 1500s and with documented written recipes. From what area of the world? What country? Um, certainly English and they were early and then early Americana, they, they're, mm. they're, you know, ripe with recipes throughout. In fact, I think uh, President Monroe had his a favorite recipe for jumbles. But all of the historical cookies that were called jumbles had nothing in them other than 
maybe caraway and anise seeds. I had maybe no some rose water. That was it. Nothing oh. else. And the way they are now is one of the, after the chocolate chip cookie, I think it's everybody's favorite that I've spoken to. Right. But but speaking of English, of course, there's the, the shortbread is, yes. I don't know how yes. long, far back that goes, but in addition to the, my crescents, I think that would be my favorite, Pl- bit more plain cookie. I mean, you call it yes. plain, but it's the essence of butter and sablés, which is French, as far as I know in origin, that has even more butter than, than shortbread. I did once did an analysis of it. And I thought, oh no wonder they're so fragile and melting in the mouth. Right. I worked right. very hard on my set on my um, shortbread recipe. I tried rice flour to make it crispy. I didn't like it. I just basically liked the plain one. And then my friend, who's a writer, also Marissa Rothberg Bates, uh, she Rothcuff, she um, she gave me a recipe for peanut butter shortbread, which is awesome. So I'm mm. not rigid about keeping to the original as long as I can keep the original and then have variations. Right. right. Oh, and tahini and sesame cookies. Those are among my favorites. Now that would be, yeah, I like those as well. I think Um, I have at least four cookies that have sesame paste in them. mm, mm -hmm. In fact, I've discovered something since I wrote the book that, oh, I forget the company that makes my favorite sesame paste, but it's, it's two sisters who started it and they now have a chocolate sesame version which is hmm. pretty good. yeah. Well, there you go. You don't have to melt the chocolate and mix it in exactly. with the sesame. It's already it's there. Fine. Plus, <laughs> it sets up immediately on mixing, which reminds me of another thing that I like about my method of making many cookies is using a food processor. Because people are always say, yeah. well, well that's what I want to talk about. I want to ah. talk about how techniques have changed in baking and making cookies, but we have to take a short break first. So we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about that, how things good. have changed. Support comes from the Pennsylvania Hemp Summit. Join us for the Pennsylvania Hemp Summit trade show and reception at the Farm Show Complex in Harrisburg on November 14th and 15th. Connect with industry stakeholders and grow the industry together through our 2023 industry planning sessions, industry and legislature panel discussions, success story sharing, professional development workshops, and a research showcase. Register to attend or get involved by exhibiting or sponsoring Details at pahempsummit.com. You know, before we went to break, um, Rose, you mentioned uh, that the food processor came into being, and that has certainly changed how we make cookies. And that's what I wanted to to hear from you is what are a lot of the techniques that have changed since the old days, shall we say, or when I was a kid learning to first make cookies? Well, in addition to what you said about ovens, you know, and I always say that in my recipes that if something is browning too much at the bottom, especially a cookie, just raise it up to another shelf. You can move cookies around in the oven. If you did that to a cake too soon, you'd end up with a fallen cake. But with most right. cookies, you can do that. Oh, also, I was there at the early days of the food processor because Carl Sondheimer sent me one and then he kept calling me every month, well, haven't you used it yet? I mean, he did that <laughs> to a lot of people because it was a huge thing, a breakthrough, getting people to get away from the, the knife or however, the mixer, and use the food processor. And I found various things worked so much better. But one of them is when people say that their cookies crack, and why do I recommend using superfine sugar? It's that the finer the sugar, the smoother the cookie is going to be. And there are some cookies where you really want to have 
cracks, like a molasses cookie, a ginger snap. That's part of it. That's a kind of rustic cookie. But for something that you want to decorate, like a holiday cookie, you need a smooth surface. And I also have a technique where I put plastic wrap on top. That's another thing that's used so much more now than was used before. And mm -hmm. that will seal any cracks that you have, unless you've used it, of course, sugar, of course. <laughs> but using the food processor, if I'm using sugar and refined sugar in it, I don't have to use super fine sugar, which is more expensive and sometimes harder to find because I start by putting the sugar in the food processor and processing it to make super fine sugar. Then I add the other things. So right. in many cookies, it's, it's cookie doughs. It's faster and easier and less messy than using a mixer. But if a cookie is really, really moist, it's harder to get out of the food processor. So that's when I didn't recommend using it in the food processor. Uh, okay. Well, what that reminds me of the um, creaming technique that I talked about <clears throat> in your introduction. And that kind of was, you know, your, your not a claim to fame, but it was, you know, you really broke tradition. Um, what is the reverse creaming technique? Can you briefly describe that for people? Oh, I'm this glad is you baking asked cakes, that. right? You know, if anybody hits Wikipedia with my name, they'll say that I invented reverse cleaning, queer creaming. I didn't even call it that. Actually, I didn't invent it. I invented using it for butter. You know, I'm one of these people when I'm told it can't be done, I think, why not? And then I try it. Like people said, you couldn't make ganache in a food processor, and that is the best way. And that's in the, the cookie book, too. But for cakes, I tried I had maybe 22 experiments on my basic cake. And what I found was that if you start with the dry ingredients, the, the the flour and the sugar and the leavening, if you have it in there, and, well, you would in a basic cake, of course, and then you add part of the, well, the fat, the butter, and part of the liquid mixture, and the butter coats the, the flour and keeps it from absorbing as much of the liquid to develop gluten. And you don't want gluten or very much of it in a cake. I mean, if you don't have any structures, it's going to fall, but too much and it's tough and you have coarse structure. So I found that that just worked and people started using it for all their recipes for mixing cake. I mean, of course, we're not talking about chiffon cakes and angel food cake, but using the basic butter layer cake and even an oil layer cake will work that way. And it's faster, easier, and better. And that was the, what sold 18,500 cake Bibles in one day because yeah. <laughs> Corby Cummer <laughs> featured it. And he asked me in the, for this New York Times article, what did I do that was different? And of course, everybody had to find out or to have the book in order to be able to do that method. So it really <laughs> made history because in those days, 18,000 books were the whole, whole lifespan of a successful, best-selling novel. So nobody expected that to happen, especially in those days. The cake book, books that were coming out, baking books, were failing right and left because everybody was more interested in low calorie, low fat, low sugar. You know, so it, it was it was a tough thing, and it was a big leap that the publisher took. Even though they weren't expecting it to be a great success, they thought, well, maybe this is going to work, and it more than worked. It really changed the way people bake. Yeah. Well, you've changed my life with the your 
your revolutionary way of making ganache and saying oh, it can't be done. You. Seems to be your, uh, you, you, when you wrote to me, you said, yeah, it's sort of, I react to that challenge when somebody says, oh no, it's, it, it can't be done. You shouldn't do it that way that you insisted on finding why out why and, and finding out if you could do it. Yeah. And that's what I meant. It ties in with the idea of freedom. You don't have to be confined by other people's dictates, you know, and, and uh, right. also that, Find out yourself if you have if you want to see if something is going to work or not, and then you know. Well, what are some of the most important things that that you think home bakers need to know, or or what are the most common mistakes that home bakers making cookies? Let's let's stick to cookies for this one. What I mean, what are some things that make a big difference? Flour, the type of flour that you use. Mm-hmm. For example, unbleached flour will brown faster because it's slightly higher protein, and it also ties up the liquid so it won't puff as much. Uh, so you can control things by what you're looking for in it. I mean, like a small cookie, some of them, in the small time that it takes or the short time it takes to bake, won't be as brown as you might like. So either you could use a higher temperature, but would also affect the consistency, or you can use unbleached flour, which would brown faster. Another thing, their eggs are less often used in cookies than it is, of course, in cake. But where they are used in recent years, they started having young, younger laying hens for eggs. And because of that, and it took several years to get to the bottom of this, but I was, I and everybody else was noticing that the yolk was shrinking in proportion to the white. Right. So if you had the basic two ounce, 28 gram, uh, rather, it would be 56 gram egg, and you separated it, you would see that the the white was much more and the yolk was much less. And the white, when it's more, also is a problem because another of my most uh, fondest discoveries is that if you use the right amount of cream of tartar when you're making a meringue, which is used for cookies too, uh, that you cannot overbeat. And you know, all these instructions, all these years, beat until stiff but not dry. And what happens mm-hmm. is when it's dry and it's overbeaten, it separates. And instead of getting the volume, it doesn't give anything. It just dissolves kind of. But when you use the right amount of cream of tartar, you can actually beat the meringue with sugar for 20 minutes and nothing is compromised. So I consider that something very important to know. But ha- but if you, it's an eighth of a teaspoon per egg white, but now the egg whites are more, so it's not quite as foolproof. Well, now what do we do? <laughs> now we weigh or measure the egg white, right. <laughs> and right. we use a little bit of extra yolk where we need it. Now, in a cookie, I guess a little bit more or less yolk is not going to make a huge difference. But in a genoise, oh, my goodness, that, that you get a coarse texture if you don't have a full amount of egg, egg yolk because it's an emulsifier. So in a cookie, also it will come to play, especially when you're making one that's very egg yolk dependent. And a curd, lemon curd, it won't thicken as well. And mm. le- lemon butter bars are one of my favorite cookies, too. Oh, so too. I guess it is totally relevant for cookies. You know, mm. the ingredients make or break something. But the oven also, the temperature is also really critical. And well, what, and butter. What, what about butter? Ah, oh, okay. But let me get to first oh, before okay. I forget about the oven, because if the problem is that if you wait until the cookie is firm to the touch and you want a soft cookie, you're not going to get it because it continues baking after you take it out of the oven because it's right. so small. Okay. About butter. Yes. People tend to think more expensive butter is therefore better. In other words, high fat butter, European butter, and it's better for laminated doughs, but not for cookies, for most cookies, great for buttercream, 
So uh, and double A butter, I would say, is what to look for. Because if you use a, one of the, not generic, but one of the like supermarket brand, not all of them, some of them are good, but some of them aren't up to standard as far as the amount of fat relates, related to the amount of water in the butter. So that's going to change things too. Right, right. You know, sometimes when people ask questions, I feel like I'm getting out my Sherlock Holmes magnifying glass. Like, what did you do different? <laughs> Usually the first thing is some ingredient, you know. And especially when they say, it's always worked before. What has changed? Nothing has changed. And I say, look, it happens to me. And either it's something that I hadn't thought of that was significant that I changed, or an ingredient may have changed. Like during COVID, flour changed. It was less strong. So don't always blame yourself, guys. You know, yeah. it could be that it's the ingredient. Well, and like anything else, the weather, you know, it could be raining. It could be very humid out, you know. So that's going to I think that's more applied to meringues. And even then, I find it's less significant these days now that we have better insulation and stuff. That's true. True. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And the first thing I did when I made my baking kitchen, when we moved, I turned the entire basement into a baking kitchen. And the first thing I did is I said, this room is having an air conditioning before, an air conditioner before any other room, because baking is all about temperature. And now that there's a wonderful thermometer. I actually, I don't know if you know this, but I designed and had produced the only accurate thermometer that existed in this country and in several other ones where I brought to and that they weren't as accurate because it was a mercury thermometer. And after many years of selling them and wrapping them and sending them myself, it became illegal. The USDA said it's too dangerous in the kitchen because if it breaks, it can do damage. So I, w I was bereft because I thought, how are people going to get accurate temperature thermoworks came along with their thermopen and right. the new thermopen one which is accurate to within a second and doesn't you don't have to have a big depth to insert the tip which is ideal some cookies if you really want to know what the finished temperature is find out you know sometimes i even list it you certainly i mean this is going to an extreme but perfectionists might value that and certainly the temperature of the butter that's a very helpful thing too hmm well, you have also included in this book, you said you got a lot of recipes from friends and people, and your collaborator and now husband, Woody Wilson, yes. you have quite a few recipes that he recommended, but his his luxury brownies, I mean, that's got to be one for the record books. I mean, that's, that's wonderful. That's one of Is the that best things I've ever tasted. First of all, his mm -hmm. mother made it every Christmas, I think it was. And then he took all the best version of each one, of each component from me. And so it's like a combination of his mother and me, which is a very sentimental thing. Oh, yeah. Very nice. And his peppercockers. Sorry. I'm sorry. My brownies are one of those, those cookies were, well, cookies, it's okay, kind of. But the mm -hmm. origins of, of chocolate brownies are, is really uncertain. And I didn't know if you had any insight into that? None I feel it was probably happened by mistake. You know, a cake fell. <laughs> no, I think what happened, because one day I, I discovered this wonderful technique for making cake with chocolate. When you use cocoa, to use boiling water to hydrate the cocoa instead of adding it all to the the rest of the ingredients, because it, it you get an explosion of flavor, like two times the amount if you don't than if you don't do it. So one day I thought... So let's use this technique for brownies, but brownies doesn't have any water. So I added a little water and yes, it was more flavorful, but it wasn't a brownie. It was a cake. You know? yeah, so it's the yeah. inverse of what you just said. Somebody probably forgot to put the liquid in the cake and they thought, 
hmm, this is good. Let's call it a brownie. (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting. Um, There are, I mean, there are so many incredible recipes in this book. And and of course, cookie, who doesn't love a cookie, right? Um, But um, I, oh, bourbon balls were something that, that, I was mm. leafing through the book, and I'm not going to go through my list of favorites because there are too many. Except I can mention the freezer pecan bars. Oh my god! Oh, isn't that great? Oh, and that you can wonderful. eat them from the freezer, and that they're—I mean, they're baked. Sweet. Yes, they're baked, but then oh, yeah. you put them in the freezer, right? And you and you eat them frozen if you want. Yeah, and so it, the free, anything that's cold is less sweet than something that's room temperature. So that way, it's not cloyingly sweet either. That's another great mm-hmm. advantage. But the bourbon balls uh, caught oh, my yeah. eye too, and like rum balls, and I so I did a little sleuthing on that one, and I thought they were would be much older than what I found out. But mm. what? But what records tell us? Who knows? You know that basically they were created in bakeries to use up leftover unsold cake. I love that concept. Yeah, yeah. you know that no, Walt Disney. No waste. He actually didn't want to waste anything, so that any cookie crumbs or that were left over, he used to put on the outside of cake out of the mm. cream or even the outside of the cake that got dry, he would do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, about, and about bourbon bowls, I have a friend, I haven't heard from her in a few years, but every single year as we approach the holidays, she would say, I'm so sorry. I can't find the recipe for the bourbon bowls. Can you please send it? <laughs> and, and when we went on tour in, um, and, at the fort in Denver, outside of Denver, Colorado, my friend Holly Arnold gave a little party, and she had her chef make the bourbon balls. And I said, "These are better than mine." And she said, "He added more bourbon." <laughs> you know, and also, yeah. if you let it sit, it develops more flavor, just like a fruitcake would, where you add some sort of booze. <laughs> well, there are, yeah. are, I mean, so many of, um, as I say again, so many wonderful recipes, and you know, people can find historic recipes and you're not going to want necessarily to use them. Well, they do. I've cooked from a lot of them. Amelia Simmons book. I've cooked from a lot of her from 1796 and, mm. and they turn out, they turn out. Okay. You um, must know what you're doing. After all, Escoffier's book doesn't have any, only the ingredients. He doesn't have any measures at all either. Right. That's how French right. chefs learned originally. That's right. He just was known for, I think it was, yeah, it was he who said that the solution to all life is du beurre, du beurre, and toujours du beurre. Butter and butter <laughs> more and butter, always more butter. butter. He's my kind right. of man. <laughs> right. Okay, so I'm going to finish off here with asking you, what makes your chocolate chip cookies different, first of all, because, you know, you, you, and what did you call them? You called them my dream cookies? or mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so what, what makes them your dream cookie? It's browning the butter. Uh-huh. I thought one day that I don't want to have as much liquid in the in the, crisp, in the chocolate chip cookie. I want it to be crispy, and I can get rid of the liquid. And at the same time, instead of throwing out the milk solids when you brown butter, you get more flavor from the brown butter, but also from the solids. I'll add those too. So that's basically it. And thank you for yeah, asking. And, it's, <laughs> yeah. and of course, you know, it's just usually it's one of those things that I, you know, I. I know my my recipe by heart and throw it together, and they always turn out a little different because I'm either in a hurry or not in a hurry or have different ingredients. Well, also, but that it's not is, as sweet. One of my goals was yeah. I didn't want as much salt and I didn't want as much sugar. I wanted it balanced. So originally I told my editor for the, the Rose's Christmas Cookies, I'm not putting in chocolate chip cookies because everybody has a recipe. And she said, 
that they'll want yours. That's so, of course, right. that got the wheels turning. That's right. And mm. they want to know, how does the cookie Bible make the best chocolate chip cookies? Well, I'm going to try that method. I'm going to, to clarify my butter and let those solids brown a little and, and put the whole mess mm. into the cookies. And I'll, I'll see if, if that is indeed the difference. Do <laughs> let me know. I will. Well, this is just, it's such a pleasure to to talk to you about, about cookies, about, about baking, about the book. And, and um, it's, you know, I'm, I'm so glad that you decided to bring out another one. That was great. Oh, thank you, Lindsay. I have to you say that it's a, it was a joy talking to you. I never get tired of talking about cookies, but your questions <laughs> were really wonderful and different from anybody else's. So it just made me really well, good. think. Good. I'm glad. And do math well, on the fly, which isn't that something I usually hazard. well be sure to check it out it's rose levy berenbaum if you don't know her name already from the i mean she's iconic come on from (laughs) from the the cookie from the cake bible and all the other books it is quite simply the cookie bible but there's nothing simple about it (laughs) thanks so much rose thank you and thanks for listening to a taste of the past and remember that You can find A Taste of the Past at heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you get your podcasts. But if you go to our website, heritageradionetwork.org, and click on the heart in the upper right corner, you might think about making a donation. It keeps us all on the air, all of us who do shows with Heritage Radio. It keeps us going. Thanks so much. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.